everything in its time. We'll let everybody move and get in place, and then I can come and get in place. Uh, it's good. Um, we're working through Esther. We're to the final installment of Esther. I invite you to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 9. We're going to read two full chapters. Don't be too scared. The last chapter 10 is only three verses long. And uh, we're going to read this as we dig into the text this morning. Esther chapter 9. About um, 10 years has passed now since the beginning of the story in chapter 1. But the story has picked up pace somewhere around chapter 3 or so, and the bulk of this story is taking the course of one year as we anticipate the 13th of the month, the 13th of Adar. Well, let's begin reading in uh, Esther chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. And all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adaliah and Aradatha and Parmashta and Arasai and Aridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hung on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews were in Susa, gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day of day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that day a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns 
hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday, as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamaditha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and to cast the poor, that is, to cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and what they had faced in this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and that throughout every generation they be kept in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth. That these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. And the command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he has great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This ends the word of the Lord. This, uh, you can tell, we're rounding out the narrative, and it's summarizing much of the whole uh, story and the drama, the intrigue uh, that we've experienced in these weeks together. The... Um, Narrative kind of unpacks, and I'll, I'll put it in five or so little narrative blocks. The first one is just verse one. It's really simply kind of a summary or introduction of what what's has happened and what, where our timing is. It's the 12th month, the month of Adar. That's the, the month of infamy, the one that had been coming, the one that had been rolled by the die, casting of the lot, that that would be the month when the uh, enemies of the Jews could have free reign and attack uh, them with, without any limitation and take everything that belonged to them. 
That was Haman's plan. Well, the month of Adar comes. It's the 13th day. And the 13th day is still ominous in our calendars, isn't it? It says that uh, on this day, the reverse happens. The reverse. They had about to gain mastery over the Jews, but the reverse occurred. This word reverse is like uh, flipping a pancake. That's kind of the image. Or uh, turning over a dish. This morning, I landed like a pancake. Um, the flip was not so much like a nice pancake flip. I did flip, but not that graciously. I was in a hurry. I'm getting ready for the baptism. Ran upstairs to get a towel. I'm coming down the stairs, and I didn't realize there was one more step before the landing. And I landed. Um, I missed that step, and of course then went down the rest of it to the rest of the landing. I don't know if you can see a little... There's a shiner in my suit pant. Um, might be a good excuse to get a new suit. I don't know, but there's a little mark there. I don't know if you can see it. I can see it. It bothers me. Good excuse. So that was not the kind of reversal that you want to see happen. That's not the kind of flip-flopping that you want to have going around. I think I'll be okay. But the enemy had intended evil and God turned it around on them, particularly on the head of Haman, to use it for good. God doesn't engineer evil. He's not the author of sin or wickedness, but it is not outside of His purview. He, he turns those things around and uses them to accomplish His purpose. It reminds me of the Joseph narrative. Joseph in the book of Genesis. And he's meeting with his brothers after their father had passed away. And the brothers are scared. Now that dad's gone, what's Joseph going to do to us? Is he going to get revenge upon us for selling him into slavery and lying to dad that, that some animal had eaten him up? And there he is before us. And Joseph comforts his brothers. And he says in chapter 50, verse 20 of Genesis, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about what it is this day, the salvation of many souls. He turned it around. And through this narrative, we see that Haman is an agent of Satan. Haman is indeed a man, a human being, a descendant of Hamaditha, a descendant of the Amalekites, an enemy of the Jews long-standing for generations. And Haman, yes, is responsible for his own decisions and actions. But he is doing this wittingly or unwittingly in cahoots with the greater enemy, the devil, who has been trying to eradicate the line of Messiah ever since the beginning of our creation. Adam and Eve were promised that as a result of their sin, they would be booted out of the garden. And yet, there would be a seed descending from them that would allow them to get back into the garden. They have two sons, a Cain and an Abel. And Cain kills the one that looks like he's the promising one to get us back into the garden. Abel is killed. The devil from the beginning has been trying to eradicate the line of the promised one, the promised seed. He did this uh, under the Egyptians. And Pharaoh would kill the, uh, the, the baby boys of the Jews that were in slavery. Herod would do this at the birth of, of the seed. Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, the, one, the line to be fulfilled from Abraham to David, Jesus. 
And Satan instigating Herod of jealousy. Not wanting to give up the title King of the Jews to anyone. Slays the baby boys. God preserved His Son and told that Joseph uh, to go to Egypt in fulfillment of another prophecy. I suppose we'll talk about those things in the weeks to come, Advent and into Christmas. But that has been the plan of the enemy. But God can constantly thwarts the enemy's plans. Indeed, it says, on the very day. God is never too early, and God is never too late. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman, to live under the law, to redeem those under the law. In the fullness of time, at just the right moment, God sent forth His Son. At just the right moment, God will turn the tables for the Jews even in Esther's day. In your life, at just the right moment, at the very time, God will make things turn around. We're in a hurry, aren't we? I am. I want to see things turn a lot quicker. I want to see things turn so much so that I don't fall down the stairs again. There is no guarantee or promise for that. We don't live by luck or chance or coincidence. We live by providence under a divine, under a God who is love, who is just, who is righteous. And He will make things right. I know we get in a hurry. We want to see justice served. We want to see righteousness rule and reign absolutely right now. We wonder why are things bad? Why do they seem to be getting worse? If there's a God, why are they bad? Well, we need perspective. For if God was as quick as we are to judge, then He would have judged right in the garden and not even afforded an opportunity of time for you to exist at all. In God's patience and forbearance in bringing out His justice, He is creating a people for Himself. And those people need to be born, yes, into a fallen world, but they need to be born. That He, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, would make them born again into newness of life. Faith in Jesus. The power of the resurrection. So, there is this flip-flopping, but what the devil intended for evil, God had already determined to make the means of salvation. Yes, the Messiah would be betrayed by treachery. He would be mocked unjustly. He would be crucified as a criminal, though an innocent man. But God determined to use those very means to accomplish salvation. In fact, uh, one translation of Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 talks about Jesus as the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. This is not plan B. God is not saying, oh no, look what the devil did. What do I do now? I'll come up with a plan. No. Even before God had determined to create he had determined he wanted to save a people for himself. The lamb slain 
from the foundation of the world. Well, that's our first verse. The next, two, next few verses, verses 2 to 4, we see this uh, fear. We'll call this fearing. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout the provinces to lay hands on those who sought their harm. But no one could stand against them, for the fear of them, fear of the Jews, had fallen on all the peoples. And not only that, Mordecai is great, and fear of Mordecai, the end of verse 3, came upon the leadership uh, of, uh, of the empire. The man Mordecai became more and more great, verse 4 ends. This construction is, is uh, uh, the same construction that's used of Moses when the Egyptians had reverence and awe for Moses and the signs that the Lord had done through him. Even a greater weapon than a sword is the fear of the Lord. And God gave his people a greater weapon than that of the flesh is that of the Spirit. The fear. The fear of the Lord as it's demonstrated, manifest through the people of God and through His servant. One commentator asked the question, is there anything in the midst of God's people today that would cause the world around us to fear God? That if they should happen to come in our midst as we're in the, this, this liturgy of worship, is God by His Spirit moving and convicting in hearts anything among the people? We are absolutely so devoted to God, so devoted to His Word, that the fear of the Lord would come upon them and they would fall down and say, God is in their midst. Would you like Grace Bible to be that kind of place? Amen. Because that kind of fear saves lives. It brings people into the fold of His own. God is truly among them. Well, verses 5-16 to form the bulk of this and we get the battle scenes. We don't get a lot of details. We just kind of get the results. It's kind of like uh, in The Hobbit and the Battle of the Five Armies. Uh, it's, it's just an immense conflict. But Frodo gets knocked on... Con I'm sorry, not Frodo. That's the other one. Bilbo. Bilbo, Bilbo gets not... Am I ruining it, the whole story? Bilbo, you're, some of you are thinking, Bilbo, Frodo, what? Bilbo gets knocked unconscious and so, and so you don't get all the gruesome details of the battle because he didn't see them. And the story is narrated from his perspective. Well, we don't get all the details here. We get enough. 500 men are killed within the citadel itself. The 10 sons of Haman are killed. And throughout the provinces, 127 provinces, 75,000 are killed. That sounds like a ginormous number, but recognize the empire is you know, the whole known world at the time. 127 provinces. So if you divide 120, what is it, 75,000 by 127, you get something like 600 per province. There's that much hatred for God's people in each province, and yet 600 out of thousands within each province. I don't mean to belittle the death of any. Recognize this is a self-defense action. The Israelites are not on the offensive. 
They're simply responding to those who started it, those who come to them first. And notice three times it's mentioned, and they did not take the spoil. It had been permitted for them lawfully to take the spoil of all those that would attack them, just as those that attacked them would take the spoil of the Israelites. It's an equal, contradicting edict. But the Jews, the Israelites, do not take the plunder. And it's in great likelihood because therefore Father King Saul did take the plunder and lost the kingdom as a result. And Mordecai is in the descent of the line of Saul. The Jews don't want what happened to King Saul to happen to them again. They're already in another land in exile because they had disobeyed the Lord. Now, if you want a little more unpacking about war and vengeance and justice and God's judgment upon all nations and upon all peoples, then you need to go back to last week's talk in chapter 8. And we, we discussed a little bit about God's justice. And God judged the, the Israelites as well. He didn't select any nation and not bring judgment upon them. God judges all peoples. He judges all nations. And he each, we each, must be ready to face that judgment. Well, the fighting ensues. And then verses 17 to 22 describe the feasting. So, relief and rest are key words. You see relief there in verse 16 and rest in verse 17. This whole concept will repeat. The emphasis, though, you know, in these battles is not on the victory, is it? That seems to be the king's perspective as he gets news about this and he's talking, talking to the queen. Wow, did you hear the news? It reported 500 deaths just in the capital alone. Can you imagine what happened in the rest of the empire? What more do you want to do? He's kind of got this bloodlust, it would seem. He's kind of finding some enjoyment in this retaliation from his perspective. The Queen Esther doesn't quite go with him there. She says, just give my people one more day. Just give them one more day. And as a deterrent, could we take the bodies of Haman's ten sons and hang them up on the gallows? Now, the sons are already dead. In fact, they typically would kill the person before they would impale them or put them up on the stake. So, if you read a, a modern version of the book of Esther, the scroll of Esther, and you get to this listing of the ten names they've been a little artistic in the way they present the names. It's in giant columns, two columns, and it's kind of stacked, the ten names of the ten sons, like a giant gallows, and they're all hanging on the gallows level by level. You kind of would have to see it. I should have put a little photo in there. I wasn't going to even bring this up. So 
when I felt it must have jogged something in my head. Now, that's a modern uh, variation. The original text wouldn't have that in there because the emphasis is not on the victory per se. The emphasis is on the result. Rest and relief. And if we're careful reading through Joshua, reading through Judges, we'll see a similar theme that's repeated. And the land had rest from war. The land had rest from war. Do you know this rest and this relief? The Lord was working to restore Israel to the land. Even at this point in history, there's a a ragtag group that has gone back to the wild frontier, gone west to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, the temple. But most of the people are still in exile. Most of the people are still living in the far reaches of the empire. But the land, it would seem, as important as it is, isn't the main thing. The people can have relief and the people can have rest even now when they're not in the land. That's a change. That's a different message, a different emphasis. Now, to be sure, like we mentioned, God was working to restore Israel to the land. And as I read Romans 9, 10, and 11, I see that God will restore Israel to the land again. And Jesus will reign and bring judgment on this earth. But more importantly, is this rest apart from the land? We touched on this in Hebrews when we went through Hebrews earlier. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the believer and the rest that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the land that was a a symbol, a prototype of the real rest that is in Christ. Hebrews 4, verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest. Verse 9 goes on to say, So there remains a, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works as God did from His. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. The rest that is in Christ. His work of redemption, of salvation, is complete. It is finished. Sin is dealt with. All of its guilt, all of its shame. Christ has paid the penalty. The righteous for the rest of us, unrighteous, to bring us to God. And in that, we too can feast. Indeed, the Lord's table, uh, the early church and uh, the New Testament church would, would seem to have celebrated the love feast every Lord's Day. They had what we call communion every Lord's Day. Although, They had a love feast. We get 
a piece of bread and a shot glass of juice hors d'oeuvres for the real feast that is to come. We are a people, notice these words that repeat throughout the section, rested, gladness, feasting, joy, holiday, gifts. It's okay to give gifts. It's okay to feast. But notice it's in conjunction with fasting. We see the word come up near the end of the passage. So throughout history, the people, would, the people of Israel would fast on the 13th and then feast on the 14th um, in the rural towns. In the cities, they would, they would fast on the 13th, the 14th, and feast on the 15th. So you can see that as we go ahead, Mordecai and Esther are trying to bring some, some normality to the whole situation. We've got to get together here. And so they do. But gift-giving... Gift-giving is an attribute of God. And so we give gifts. Let me just, just read two passages to demonstrate this. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from heaven, from God. Yeah. Every good gift. Chocolate. Donuts. Banquette. We're entering into that season. What else is a Dutch uh, festive food? Pigs in the blanket. <laughs> Marriage. Children, heating and air conditioning, indoor plumbing, clothing, every good gift comes from God. Some of us acknowledge that, and many don't. There is another gift. I suppose we who come to a building like this on Sunday mornings are, are real quick to get to the gift of salvation. And rightly so. But let's not miss everything along the way that God has given us. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Ephesians 4, 7, 8 says, The grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. As we go into a gift-giving season, it's good to temper our expectations of both the giving and the receiving with this reality that it's an attribute of God. Well, they formalized all this, verses 23 to 28, even gave it a name. Hey, the, the lots were cast. That's the poor in Persian. Persian. And the plural of poor is purim. So the feast of lots, 
the Feast of Dice. Like the Feast of Weeks. Or the Feast of Tabernacles. Or the Feast of Lights. This one now gets included. And not only, not only is, is there the name, but in the name is the reminder that wicked men may devise a plan and a plot, but God rules the casting of the lot. God rules and overrules the thoughts and plans of evil people. God assigns to each their portion. The psalmist in Psalm 16, verse 5 says, The Lord has chosen my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. A beautiful inheritance. We had the uh, IFCA executive board meetings this last week, and they, they ran, the last day was up till Thursday, and by Thursday morning, uh, the guys that had traveled in from other parts of the country are getting nervous. They'd already been getting nervous the night before because of snow. I said, well, it is Michigan. We might get that snow that they say, but we might not. So off they go, and everyone did get home, some significantly delayed, sleeping in the airport and so forth. But they, they got home, and there was some other news uh, from a university, a Christian university down south that we all had been praying for and concerned about. And the news came back positive, came back good. And so one sent a group text out to all these men saying, you know, thank the Lord for this good decision to retain their president. And that was great in and of itself, but then ensued all kinds of, you know, there's 14 guys now in this group text. And all day yesterday, it's football. <laughs> I'm like, you guys got sermons on Sunday? Or, you know, I... They're good men. They're further down the road than I am, so they're probably you know, seasoned at this. But I, I was really tempted to take a, a photo of my backyard yesterday covered in snow and blowing and drifting and send it to that group text and say, the lines have fallen for me in beautiful places. Well, there is a formalizing of these things, and we have the holiday season, as we call it. It begins with, I suppose, Halloween uh, now these days. It keeps getting longer, you notice, year by year. Uh, they even extended the Super Bowl another week or two into February to make the whole holiday season run longer, all the way from Halloween to Super Bowl. Right? This is one big party after another. But do we remember the reason for the party? Do we remember the grace of God in all of His precious gifts? Yes, I suppose even football is a gift of God. Hmm, did not get any amen on that one. 
He has given us the, the gift of recreation and games of refreshment. Do you remember why we celebrate Halloween? Why we celebrate Reformation Day? Why do we celebrate Thanksgiving Day? Why do we celebrate Advent before Christmas? Why do we celebrate once Christmas Day comes 10 days of Christmas? Why do we celebrate the epiphany, the shining brilliant glory, the naming of our Lord Jesus? Because it's the history of redemption. And the history of God's plan of redemption intersects with our history, our lives. Friend, where, where does the story of God intersect with your story? Where is that glorious remembrance of salvation? That time when you were awakened by His glory and grace to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Celebrate it. There is this flourishing, the, the story rounds out, verses 29 into chapter 10 and verse 3. That fasting that's mentioned here uh, in this verse 31, fasting and lamenting, recalls that they fasted for three days before Esther went to the king and get permission even to talk to him, let alone the request itself. Mordecai's life Himself is summarized at the end of chapter, of chapter 10, verse 3. It says, He sought the welfare of His people and spoke peace to all of His people. He's a man of goodness, is the word, and a man of shalom, of welfare, of peace. Mordecai's unique legacy, his contribution, his model, is that he combined service to the king and service to the people without compromising either one. We need godly servants like this in many places of leadership. In politics, in industry, in the arts, in the sciences, in commerce. We need men and women who serve with goodness and peace without compromise without compromising the authorities, without compromising the people that authorities are to serve. Now, in all this story, God is working. He's never mentioned by name, but His divine hand is moving all of the pieces, circumstances. And we need to remember that in this story, it is God bearing witness that He will preserve the line of Messiah until Messiah comes. Why does God preserve Israel? Because He had promised that through Abraham, through David, would come the Christ. Christ has come. And that tells us this other aspect. We have a greater ruler a greater king 
a greater Lord, a greater Prince. Greater than Mordecai, greater than Esther, greater than Ahasuerus. Xerxes indeed will end up dead in just a few years, assassinated by one of the doormen, the door guards, letting someone through and killing him. As Mordecai had adverted a plot like that, someone else is going to do it anyway. We have a greater ruler, king, lord, prince. All of these heroes fall short of what we need. Don't put all your confidence in a party, in a person, a platform. Put your confidence in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, God in the flesh, the Prince of Peace. And that turns me to a text that I suppose launches us into the Advent season. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there shall be no end. Christ is King. And He reigns seated at the right hand of the Father even now. And the day is coming. And He will return for His people and He will rule and reign on David's throne and make all things right. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, we come in the name of Jesus. We're thankful for the victory that He has experienced and obtained. He Himself being vindicated, raised from the dead. We come, Lord, having confessed multiple times this morning already that Jesus is King. But if we pause to reflect upon how we live, it's quite likely we often try to usurp the throne in our decisions, in our timing, in our desires. Forgive us this, but renew our devotion to Christ, our loyalty to Him, our fidelity and service to Him. For it is through You, O God, that we will do valiantly. It is You who will tread down the enemy. We will sing and we will shout Your victory because Christ is King. You, O God, have won the victory. You have set Your people free. Your Word has slain the enemy. And the earth will stand and see that through God we will do valiantly. Christ is King. In His name we come. Amen.